How do you sort out the so-called jargon from real-world practices that work? Do the members of your organization find some business advice utterly confusing? Welcome to the 2020s Enterprise with Sam Holzman. In this program, we set the record straight and in terms that people at any level of business and technology can understand. Now, here is your host, Sam Holzman. Well, welcome. I'm Sam Holzman with the 2020s Enterprise, and uh, we will continue our discussion today on moving from the Internet age to the information age, and we began that discussion in our last broadcast. And as we did uh, uh, over the past few weeks together, I brought my first segment uh, uh, to you talking about things that I believe you can use immediately or relatively soon in your businesses. And as a series of of items that I thought would be of interest to business people, technologists, organizational change um, efforts, uh, digital transformation activities, and things like that. So we'll begin uh, this particular uh, episode also the same way, uh, bringing you some of the latest uh, uh, ideas and techniques and some things that may be head-scratchers to you in the world of business transformation, business uh, activities, again, cutting through the hype that seems to be out there on the Internet and other places that are there. And one of the first things I want to mention, of course, uh, is something that is on the top of mind in most organizations, which is cybersecurity. And uh, boy, I'll tell you, the last uh, few months especially, uh, uh, head scratchers, and uh, of course, I'm sure you've been following some of the uh, activities in Washington, D.C. regarding uh, the president and uh, some of the reports and things like that, and uh, all the hacking and things that are going on, and all the allegations and confusion that's there. Uh, this particular article is titled Cybersecurity Reality, Snooze and You Lose. And it's talking about a model that we introduced to our clients. Uh, we checked uh, before we got on the air and uh, did some research work before this broadcast uh, about 23 years ago. And it's now referred to as the Zero Trust Model. And what this is, very simply, is unlike t- traditional models uh, that talk about password protection and uh, two-factor authentication and all these fingerprint activities that get into essentially your environment, essentially that's there. This goes much deeper than that and frankly is a lot simpler. And what we mean by that is the traditional models are some, sort of like a perimeter defense. You put a fence around your, your house or your garage or your organization, whether it's uh, uh, virtual or real, And once you get inside the fence, um, some of the guards are let down, in other words. And yes, you can have different uh, security aspects on on doors and things like that, but it's referred to as perimeter defenses. What we need is actually, in the zero trust model, much deeper than that. And this particular model talks about application uh, sensitivities. In other words, we only allow certain individuals uh, to have access to the applications. Uh, The model that we've uh, uh, recommended to our clients goes one deeper than that, and that is actually looking at the processes that an individual can undertake or understand or even see and the associated data involved in that. And that is not that difficult to do when you actually architect the environment with security as an enablement activity rather than an afterthought. So that's something that you're going to be hearing about quite a bit is this concept of, and it may have different names, zero trust model, to bring essentially more granularity uh, to what people are using on the Internet today. Another topic, transformation, digital transformation. Lots and lots of headlines about that. Uh, This article um, says the following, many transformation efforts plagued by high costs, low returns, and much confusion. Here we go again. The phrase that we always use is, all you got to do is, and you'll hear that a lot when it comes to the new things that are out there. All you got to do is X, Y, Z, and you don't have to work and think again in your life, and everything will be wonderful. Anytime you hear that, what you should probably do is make sure that you put your hand firmly over your wallet because you know it's going to cost you some money. This particular article says 42% of C-level executives say they do not know where to start when developing their transformation strategy. Well, why don't we start off with defining what digital transformation is to your organization and defining the goals that you're trying to achieve. 
And goals are not improve productivity, reduce cost, value, or employees, those types of things. Those are platitudes. We have to make sure we understand measurable objectives from this activity as all the activities we're doing in our enterprise. And organizations have been wasting significant resources that have been poorly planned. That's the key word, plan, plan. You have to have a, a blueprint, an architecture, whatever you like to call it. And that has to be measurable, accountable. You have to have dates and times where you see progress, not possibly end results, but are we moving toward an objective? If you think about a house, you can see progress there. You dig a hole in the ground, you pour some cement in for the basement, you build a first floor, you build a second floor, those are shelves, and you can see progress going on that's measurable. Well, the same thing we can do with essentially transformation efforts. There has to be benchmarks out there so you know that you're going in the right direction. And, of course, you can make mid-course uh, corrections if you see some anomalies going on. 41% of the senior executives think their business transformation efforts have been a waste of time. Well, that's a big number. That's a big number. 37%, additional 30% have spent more than a half a million dollars and that is the low end of what we're hearing. We have some numbers that approaching 15 to $25 million per an effort that have been contracted over a 12-month period, and no one has talked about returns that are there. So, again, we have a term that has a lot of hype associated with it, lots of activities going on, uh, but not much progress and not much activity. And I think it's because very, very loosely defined once again. This article is fascinating to me. Student used a USB killer device. In other words, a plug-in memory device to destroy a college computers. And this was a small college. A former student at the College of St. Rose in Albany, New York, has pled guilty to charges that he destroyed tens of thousands of dollars worth of campus computers using a USB device designed to instantly overwhelm and fry the internal circuitry. Such devices can easily and freely be purchased online and can overload the, overload the search protection in many PCs that are there. So this is a situation where we didn't think about these things ahead of time, and now we see the unintended consequences. And if somebody can completely destroy a computer using that, um, you can think about the other damage, something like that can be done. One of my newest favorite articles is the chief digital officer role is already heading toward extinction. The CDO. All you got to do is hire a CDO and you'll never have to work and think again in your life. We've never explained how a chief digital officer differs from a chief information officer, differs from a chief marketing officer, differs from a chief technology officer, and all the other CXOs that are out there. And so, again, we read an article somewhere and we say, boy, this is it. All you've got to do is this and you'll never have to work and think again in your life and everything will be wonderful because everybody else is doing it. And then we look at it and say, well, what does it actually mean? And it, the article goes on and says, as e-commerce e eats, uh, eats up a growing share of retail, streaming takes over in entertainment and social media exerts its hold on pretty much everything, the chief digital officer once seemed a critical position in any company that wanted to remain relevant. Well, last year, 2018, 54 companies in the United States created a CDO. You may say, well, that's because everybody else has them. Well, according to these statistics, 124 were created in 2017 and 160 in 2016. Now, of course, this is one article. Um, I'm quoting from an article uh, that was written, you know, earlier this month. Maybe it's accurate, maybe it's not. But just think about the hundreds of thousands of organizations out there. And now you can see one of the purposes of this particular program you're listening to. Sort out the hype from reality. It's easy to write an article on the Internet. It's easy to get people convinced. It's actually easy to write a marketing brochure. But when we get down to it, we start seeing that perhaps there's not much there. Leaders now believe that putting a single person in charge of digital transformation may not be the best approach. Duh, as Homer Simpson sometimes says, because it's an intrinsic strategy priority across the whole business. 
and it's because this concept of agility. And a broadcast coming up, we're going to be talking about the concept of agility. Agility has very little to do with handcrafting computer systems quickly. It has to do with the environment being able to react to change. It is about change, about continuous change. And the environment has to recognize that change is continuous. And that's how essentially an organization will become reality. I'm going to read this one paragraph here and not make any comments until the end. UK to enforce, the United Kingdom to enforce new age checks for porn. When the controversial age verification law announced this past week takes effect July 15th, porn producers and free video, video hosting sites such as Pornhub will, require, will be required to enforce strict checks to ensure users are not under 18. To access adult content, consumers will need to submit credit card or passport information or obtain an age verification pass from a local store. Websites that fail to comply with the world's fortress law could be completely blocked from Britain. Is there a downside? Privacy activists, activists excuse me, are up in arms over the possibility of a government-owned database of porn users. Noting data leaks could be disastrous. Give me a break. This is the only data breach we're worried about, as you'll see from some of the article, other articles uh, that we're seeing out there. I think this one's going to be kind of fun to watch how all this evolves. Of course, I don't know what our audience age profile is, but I perhaps can suggest that at least a few of you out there, possibly in your high school or even college days probably, may have had an identity uh, piece of identity card a license or some identity identification that perhaps wasn't 100% accurate as to how old you were. And perhaps you were using that to obtain some liquid refreshment that was supposed to be dedicated to adults. But we'll, we'll go on from there. This one should scare the bejesus out of all of us. Criminals are putting old tax returns up for sale on the dark web. Identity theft has reached rock bottom prices. Old tax, document, old tax documents can now be had for as little as $1. Old tax documents can be used to file fraudulent returns or as backup to other accounts and victims' names. Listing of names, date of birth, social security number combinations now range in price from, listen to this, 19 cents to $62. Prior tax forms, there's actually sites out there that have prices on them. Prior tax forms on sale by three different vendors, I'm not going to name them here, cost between $1.04 and $52. And in parentheses, people with higher incomes whose identity hasn't yet been stolen command higher prices uh, that are out there. Some of you, I'm sure, have been following the uh, the uh, president's uh, 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 in uh, lack of desire of having his tax returns published. Well, maybe they should go to one of these sites and take a look there. I'm trying to be a little silly. Okay. Now, one of the ads that I saw says, these items pair very well with many of my other forgery items, such as forged IDs and especially forged Social Security cards. Isn't that a great ad that uh, you might want to see out there? For as little as 19 cents for your ID and a dollar for your last tax returns, I can own you indefinitely until you have to go through the nightmare process of getting your Social Security number changed. How's that for a real nice uh, situation for all of us that are out there? Now, there's an article. Uh, there, the, the gentleman that wrote the article ends this and, and says, uh, his name is Tom Kellerman. Everyone who isn't about to move or buy a car should freeze their credit. A credit freeze would prevent most unauthorized activities and is a straightforward process. And he ends part of his discussion with the following. All you have to do is call a credit bureau and put your social security number on over the phone. And I would recommend doing this on the phone rather than on the Internet uh, that's out there. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. 
This one is very aggravating. Facebook collected millions of email contacts without consent. In early April, Facebook came under fire for asking some users for their email password when signing up for a social network. Now it turns out Facebook isn't uploading this email contacts of users without consent since 2016. 2016. Facebook admitted that it unintentionally uploaded this information. This is hard for me to believe. If some of you remember what happened, unfortunately, in the uh, emission scandal at Volkswagen, we have to remember these are large organizations which have budgets, which have people doing actual work. Someone had to write the code. Somebody had to embed the code. Somebody had to make the computer system collect this stuff. It doesn't happen magically. There has to be a deliberate set of actions that we're talking about here. And that's, again, what we should be looking at. What is that situation? And how come we actually you know, see these types of things? And what, of course, can we do about it? And uh, that's what we have to you know, consider as we're, we're looking at this. So whether we think it's unintentional or not, it's been going on for some time. And uh, this particular article essentially will give us some insight uh, into, into that uh, area that's there. The IRS releases a modernization plan. And this is something that we've seen for some time. And uh, basically, we have a situation where the IRS is trying to, as they say, tweak or retire at least 20 systems. 20 systems. And in a future broadcast, we'll talk about how we would recommend they do that. And it has to do with the concepts we call data warehouse, data distribution centers, Process warehouse, process distribution centers, and then essentially an architecture to make all of this happen together. And that will, that's what we believe is the fundamental activities we need to actually do a modernization plan. So with that, we'll take a short break, and we'll return in just a couple of minutes, and we'll get into essentially looking at the Internet age to the information age movement that all of you are going to face. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here just in a few minutes. Is your organization in the internet age when those around you are moving into the information age? Are your hallway conversations filled with words and phrases like blockchain, AI, VR, cloud computing, and micro this and that? Are you interested in bringing some method to the madness? Then talk to us. Through years of consulting with clients all over the world, the Pinnacle Business Group and Architecture's Center of Excellence have developed an understanding of what makes a consultant-client relationship work. And this understanding comes to every engagement. The Pinnacle Business Group assists organizations in solving their business and system challenges with its unique, proven approaches, bringing teams of business and system personnel together to jointly define business and system requirements. The teams are led through a series of facilitated activities to provide innovative solutions to their business and system challenges. We look forward to hearing from you. Visit PinnacleBusinessGroup.com. You are listening to The 2020s Enterprise with Sam Holzman. We welcome questions and comments about the program via email to sam at eacoe.org. That's sam at eacoe.org. Now, back to The 2020s Enterprise. The 2020s Enterprise, here we are, and we're going to be discussing essentially the movement from the internet age to the information age. And I began that discussion in our last broadcast. And I talked about essentially the attributes that we need to study as we move essentially from the internet age, to the information age. And I began that dialogue talking about essentially one age prior to that, that we're all moving out of, which we call the industrial age. And let me just recap again the age attributes. The first one that I discussed in detail last week in our broadcast was the dominant technology. And dominant technology in the industrial age was the machine. The dominant technology in the Internet age was the computer. 
and the dominant technology in the information age is going to be information classification. And we spent a, con- a considerable amount of time discussing uh, what this was. The other attributes we're going to be discussing uh, beginning in just a few minutes is what is the icon? What is that indicator to us that we're actually moving to a new age? What is the science behind this? Is there science behind this this whole area? What is the output? What is the output that is expected out of these ages? What is the, quote, energy source? It may sound kind of funny when you say that, but what is the what fuels this new particular age? What is the basis of wealth? This is a huge change that we believe is also going to occur, and it offers a little bit of trepidation to some of the incumbent players, massive opportunities for others, and of course, we're not suggesting that the incumbent players are sitting still and not doing anything that's there. What is actually going to make a difference in this new age? What is the characteristics that's there? How are we going to define the work? What is the characteristic of the workforce in that area? What are we actually doing in that particular age uh, that may be different? And when it comes to the human endeavor, what's the organizational form? What do we think the organizational form is going to be uh, that's out there? And then finally, uh, uh, two other items, means of logistics. How are we going to essentially have per people and products and technologies and services and things like that? What's essentially the distribution mechanism that is going to occur? And finally, where is the marketplace? And we see that changing in front of us that's there. So again, in my last broadcast, I I spent some time on this dominant technology. Let's go to the second one uh, in in a little bit more detail, and that's the icon. And in the industrial age, the icon was the gasoline engine. That really is what fired that up. And and of course, we're in the sort of in the ending of the industrial age. It doesn't mean that the age ends and the the technology goes away. But basically, the gasoline engine uh, was the primary focus of the industrial age and all of the engine types, whether they were running on gasoline, by the way, or other fuels uh, you know, that are out there. In the Internet age, the icon was the microprocessor. That was really the key element that we saw that started this transformation and continues today. Of course, we see uh, smaller and smaller uh, microprocessors with more and more processing uh, that allows us to carry, you know, things together. And, and you know, we thought that, uh, you know, uh, let's talk about mobile communication for, for just a, a while here. Um, we first had, of course, telephones, and then we had the mobile phones. And I, I remember calling it the Motorola brick I had in my car, which was this pretty large device that looked sort of like an, a, a military-like walkie-talkie uh, that was out there, had an antenna sticking out, and was a nice beige color that was there. And uh, it was a marvel of technology, uh, you know, at that particular time. And as essentially the technology got better, the things got smaller and smaller and smaller. And, of course, I believe probably most of you now have some kind of device uh, using the moniker smartphone. And some of you may have the Dick Tracy-enabled wrist phone, if you remember Dick Tracy and and some of the cartoons that are out there now. He was talking to his wrist, and we can now do that at a minimum with the uh, Apple uh, watch that uh, some of you may have seen or may have had, you know, an environment and and are looking at there. The Internet age, dominated by essentially technology components that are there. The information age is going to be dominated by, and I made this term up. I don't know exactly what it's going to be called, but I refer to as the info bit. It is going to be some kind of a thing that allows us to transact in a different way. I'm not talking about bitcoins here. I'm talking about a a medium of exchange that values information. It's the information age. So, for example, and I'm just going to throw something out there. Um, if you want to um, have my Social Security number, uh, that's going to cost you three info bits, whatever that is. And uh, that's the value I put on it. It's not the value that somebody else puts on it. It's not the value that uh, a search engine puts on it. It's not the value that some commodity broker puts on it. I say, to me, this thing is worth three info bits. What are you going to give me in exchange for that to give me the three info bits? And you say, well, I, I make potato chips. 
And a pound of potato chips, I believe, is worth three info bits. What do you think? Uh, well, I don't think that we have the same understanding of what an info bit is. And there will be essentially normalization of that. It's the bartering system uh, of, of old, essentially with a technology normalization activity going on. Please remember, we're just moving into the information age. So I can't pinpoint exactly what this is going to be yet. But it's going to be essentially a medium of exchange that allows us to exchange things about information. My address is worth something. My social security number is worth something. My income is worth something. The color of my eyes, the color of my hair, my age, um, the skills that I have. It will all be normalized so that we can essentially exchange people, processes, technologies, methods, things out there in a normalized manner, and I call it the info bit. It is about the information age that's there. The science in the industrial age was based on a series of engineering disciplines, principles, and science, most principally mechanical engineering in the industrial age. Of course, we had chemical engineering, electrical engineering. All those are still there. In the Internet age, we had computer science, and that and when I was essentially a student, began with the science about building the hardware, the componentry uh, to make this thing happen and lash all this stuff together. And then it essentially evolved essentially into the science of, of using equations and mathematics and sciences, things like that, to build essentially the computer activities. Now we see the word computer science also associated with software and things like that. I think this term has gotten a bit soft, but basically it has to do with the processing activities going on. It's about the Internet and its processing. In the information age, the science is something that is a bit rare to us now. It's what I refer to as ontological science. It's the science of classification, and we'll get into this a little bit more, not only in this particular episode, but in others. This is going to be the key to the information age and true search engines, true search engines that allow us to unbiased and uh, without question be able to find things based on a classification of things. So if I want to look for roofs and different kinds of roofs, I could go to essentially a library in the olden days and find lots of things about roofs by looking essentially at a certain location in the library based on the Dewey Decimal System. Well, it wasn't based on popularity. It wasn't based on any type of artificial activity like linking or popularity or, as it's called in a lot of the uh, popularity engines that we see out there, backlinking. How many people like that site? And we all know about the false information that we have there. It has to do with classification of content. And the science behind that is ontological science. The ability to classify things without regard to bias. It's purely a classification system of understanding. And we are surrounded by these things, except in the relatively new area of technology and the search engines that are so-called on the Internet today. I like to call them, and I, and I do sound biased, and I'm saying that up front, popularity contest engines, not search engines that are out there. And I must say, for full disclosure, uh, yes, we use Google. Uh, yes, we pay Google uh, lots of money every month for uh, making sure that we are relevant uh, in the marketplace on Google searches. Uh, yes, we have organizations that assist us in search engine optimization and pay-per-click optimization, and that's the game we have to play. It's sort of like the uh, physical yellow pages of the olden days that required essentially understanding of the science behind that. But that's not the basis of true information classification. And that has to do with ontological science, building essentially a classification system without regard to bias or without regard to popularity. It's pure 
knowledge. Growing field, big time. The output in the industrial age was mass consumer goods. The output in the internet age, we have to recognize, is transmitted stuff. Now, let me use a different term than stuff. Transmitted data. But not everything is data. Now, that's why I use the word stuff. I know that's not real scientific. But it's pushing things through an electronic pipe. That's what the Internet is about. It's a, that's what it's about today. You have no idea about its accuracy. You have no idea about its correctness and content, et cetera, et cetera. You don't you have any idea of its purity. It's just, and that's the measure of things. And that's the measure we have today. As you know, in the Internet age that we're in right now, that's the bill that you get. Well, you used X gigabytes of whatever it is, and you got a bill for $29 or $59 or $159, whatever it is. It's transmitted data. Internet age, the information age, the output is information, whatever that is. And that definition is a little tough. I have a relatively simple definition of what it is. It is processed data. It's taking something out there, doing something to it, and providing essentially an output that I call information. So it's sort of like making a chocolate cake. We have a series of data elements, ingredients, chocolate, eggs, water, flour, and we have a methodology, a recipe that we use to essentially combine all that stuff together in a certain format, and the output is a cake, and that's the same thing in the information age. We'll be using data that is processed to essentially produce information that hopefully people will find to be valuable. So it's not pumping things through a wire or through an internet channel that is the measure that we're looking at. It's what are we doing with that and what value does it provide? And that concept is information uh, that is there. The energy source, the energy source, fossil fuels and its derivatives in the industrial age. And we all... I'm sure I've read various things about that uh, lately, and it's good and bad and different and things like that. And I'm not here to talk about the politics behind that stuff. The energy source in the Internet age was electrons, the movement essentially of electrons that held essentially this stuff, um, you know, that was, um, you know, that was out there. The energy source in the information age is truly a paradigm shift. And the energy source in the information age is the mind. Now, I'm going to suggest to you the human mind that may be augmented by other types of devices. Uh, And in this particular episode, I'm not going to be talking about whatever artificial intelligence means. But basically, there are going to be other types of uh, elements that we're talking about. This particular element is the big transformation activity that is, I believe, causing a lot of the strife that we see right now. And the mind is something that we can't go out to the local store and buy. It's the first time in the last 200 years or so where we're moving from technology enabling brawn, in other words, adding to our individual strength, where now we're talking about brain cells that are the measure, essentially, of what is required, the energy sources, brain cells. And that's hard to get. It's very much different than what we had before. And what we're seeing is, you know, right now, especially socially, is part of this inequality coming back that we saw, essentially, in the industrial age beginning to. Same type of thing. Because there is a different shift in value, And this is going to be a very, very difficult concept. And I live in southeastern Michigan, and some of you know that uh, Detroit used to be, and maybe is still considered to be the hub of the automotive business that's there. But we all have to recognize that General Motors went bankrupt. We also have to uh, recognize that the city of Detroit went bankrupt. 
Now, both are going through revitalization. But why did that occur? It had to do with the inability of General Motors and the inability of the city of Detroit to address the change that was going on. And the change was fundamental. From the industrial age to the internet age and the information age. And we're seeing that same situation in the workforce in some organizations. So in the internet age, when you're looking at technology people, you're looking at people that could program. And of course, programming is a handcrafting activity. It's really a maturity level that is passe. And in the information age, different set of brain cells are required. So I'm not manually putting algorithms together. It's essentially using the data and using the processes to produce new value. And that new value essentially comes through the concepts of information and the mind being able to create these new things. Yes, we're going to have tools that will augment that, but the key element for us is going to be brain cells that are harnessing that activity. So we're not harnessing oil or gas or neutrons or electrons or protons or wires or things like that. We're harnessing people's intelligence to be able to do things that they couldn't uh, essentially do before. And so that's the big difference that are there. So we're going to take another quick break uh, for just a couple of minutes or so, and we'll continue when we get back from the break in discussing the last set of components that we talk about in the movement from the Internet age to the information age. See you back here in just a couple of minutes. Thank you for listening. We'll see you on the other side. Is your organization in the Internet age when those around you are moving into the information age? Are your hallway conversations filled with words and phrases like blockchain, AI, VR, cloud computing, and micro this and that? Are you interested in bringing some method to the madness? Then talk to us. Through years of consulting with clients all over the world, the Pinnacle Business Group and Architecture's Center of Excellence have developed an understanding of what makes a consultant-client relationship work. And this understanding comes to every engagement. The Pinnacle Business Group assists organizations in solving their business and system challenges with its unique, proven approaches, bringing teams of business and system personnel together to jointly define business and system requirements. The teams are led through a series of facilitated activities to provide innovative solutions to their business and system challenges. We look forward to hearing from you. Visit PinnacleBusinessGroup.com. You are listening to The 2020s Enterprise with Sam Holzman. We welcome questions and comments about the program via email to sam at eacoe.org. That's sam at eacoe.org. Now, back to The 2020s Enterprise. Welcome back to our last segment this week, uh, moving from the Internet age to the information age. Uh, I'm Sam Holzman, your host on the 2020s Enterprise, and uh, thanks for listening, and uh, let's uh, talk about some of the other attributes. So just in summary, uh, to this point, we talked about the movement from the industrial age through the internet age to the new age we call the information age. We've discussed some of the dominant attributes at this point, uh, dominant technology changing, the icon that we see the science that's uh, going to be underpinning this information age, the output uh, that is changing from the industrial to the internet to the information age, the energy source, and we ended that discussion after, before our last break, uh, being one of the big paradigm shifts that we see out there, and that's the mind being the energy source, your mind, my mind, other people's collective minds, and the collaboration that's going on between the wisdoms of, uh, uh, of what, were, what was going on there. And the next attribute is going to be a serious one to a lot of you out there and also to some of the incumbent players that we see out there in the Internet age. And that is what is the basis of wealth? What is the basis of wealth? In the industrial age, it's the land, labor, and capital. That really was the key to that. 
And some of that, of course, I want to stress again, will carry through to through these other ages that we see out there. But really, the dominant characteristic is was land, labor, and capital. That was actually what made things click uh, out there. In the Internet age, this may sound a little funny that we're into right now, but it was and still is the distribution system, the distribution system. How does stuff get to you? Again, using that word stuff. And it's essentially the pipeline. And the equivalency is, you know, oil is distributed through pipes. In the Internet age, it's distributed through wires. And who owns those wires? And who owns that distribution system? And who owns the indexing processes? Well, it's the AT&Ts. It's the Verizons. It's the Internet service providers. It's the Googles. It's the Facebook. It's uh, Wikipedia. It's all these sources, the collectors and distributors, the collectors and distributors, and the collectors and the distributors. And I can go on and on. But they own nothing as far as information. In general, I want to be very careful here. And we're seeing that movement, as I'll discuss in just a moment. But the Internet age, the distribution system, and the ownership, or essentially the management of that, was the key. That's who made the rules. And we're seeing, of course, some of that backlash going on because some of those rules are a little um, uh, impure in some people's hearts and they're not following directly. And we all know, unfortunately, that it seems like all you have to do out there today if you essentially are breaching someone's confidentiality or trust is to stand up and say, I'm sorry, and then everything is forgiven. Well, you know what? That's insane. Because as I mentioned in my previous uh, segment, somebody has to write the code. This stuff is deliberate. I'm not saying breaches are deliberate, but somebody has to write code to put on a program to put on the internet to make these things happen it doesn't happen by magic there is traceability here there's not transparency but there is traceability there is a way to find out how this happened but nowadays as i said all we have to say is i'm sorry and everything is forgiven but especially in europe they're getting sick and tired of i'm sorry and they're also recognizing in europe that billion-dollar fines do nothing. But I believe that jail time will do things. I'm not predicting anything, and I don't want anybody to go to jail, but we got to shake things up. And we'll see that in the next attribute especially. So the basis of wealth, essentially, in the information age is going to be the information source. The information source that is going to be the key. And there are people out there that have recognized that. And we're starting to see this movement. And I have an icon for you. I'm chuckling because when you hear this icon, you're going to wonder about this a little bit, and I'll explain it in just a moment. One of the first people to recognize that something is shifting out there and this information age, in other words, the information source is actually the key, is none other than a young lady named Taylor Swift. Now, Sam, <laughs> you've lost it a little bit here. Well, let's go back here just a little while ago to what this young lady did. What a brilliant brilliant mind she has. If you remember back a little while ago, Mr. Tim Cook from Apple announced that Apple was going into the streaming music service business. And he proudly stood up there and made this beautiful press announcement and things like that. Hey, look what Apple is going to do. We're going to create this new Apple music service and we are so nice, and we are just such great people that we are going to give it to all of you for three months for no cost. Aren't we wonderful people? Well, Taylor Swift didn't think it was so wonderful. What was Mr. Cook 
and Apple really giving away. What they were giving away was the Internet Age concept of the distribution system. In actuality, what they were really giving away was somebody else's intellectual property. In other words, the songs, the stuff that goes through the pipe. And Taylor Swift, people say one person can't make a difference. Well, she's a pretty, <laughs> a pretty popular individual. She wrote a wonderful email to Mr. Cook that evening. I wasn't there, by the way, so I'm not sure if it was that evening or not. And I'm just going to take a few quotes out of this thing, okay? She said, I realize that Apple is working toward the goal of paid streaming. I think that's beautiful progress. We know how astronomically successful Apple has been, and we know that this incredible company has the money to pay its artists, writers, and producers for the three-month trial period, even if it is free for the fans trying it out. Now, that was a pretty powerful statement, but this next series of sentences says it all. But I say with Apple, I say to Apple with all due respect, it's not too late to change this policy and change the minds of those in the industry who will be deeply and gravely affected by this. Listen to this next sentence. It's so crisp. We don't ask you for free iPhones. Please don't ask us to provide you with our music for no compensation. Thank you, Taylor Swift, for recognizing that it's the intellectual property. It's the intangible stuff that we see there. That is the value. Without that, there is no streaming. There's a pipe with nothing in it. Now, this young lady was powerful enough to write this email, and the next morning, and I have to give credit for you know to Tim Cook, he got on the internet or got on the press, I don't remember exactly what it was, and he says, ladies and gentlemen, I want to make sure you understand, we have changed course here just a bit. We are going to pay the artists for this trial period, but we're not going to charge uh, the, the people, essentially, for the trial that's there. So for you and I, the consumers... Uh, not going to be charged, but we are going to essentially uh, make sure that the artists are paid for that three-month uh, period. Thank you, Taylor Swift. And again, thank you, Tim Cook, for changing the profile of things. But just think about that concept and your information and your data and your social security number and your income and your location and your buying habits and what you had for lunch and what your medical records are and how much you make and what you know and what your family is and all these other things. That's all information. And what are you getting paid for today and how is it used and do you really believe the data belongs to them? No, it belongs to you. Now, Maybe Taylor Swift isn't the icon that you're looking for. Well, how about this gentleman, Tim Berners-Lee? Now, who is that guy? Well, he's the co-creator of the Internet with Al Gore. I'm just joking. I'm not trying to sound from uh, political here at all. Tim Berners-Lee, the inventor of the web, April 4th, 2017. Of course, this is April 2019, a couple of years ago in Wired Magazine. Inventor of the web plots a radical overhaul of his creation. He sort of looked in the mirror one day and said, hmm, <laughs> that's spelled H-M. And here's what he said in April 4th. A tipping point could be reached where people will realize that data belongs to me. Yes, my friend. That's exactly what Taylor Swift and others have said you and I are going to start recognizing this and we're going to start making sure that we have control. Forget dollars for a moment. Forget revenue. We have control. It's our stuff. And I'm sick and tired of hitting the I agree on that website and recognizing that I've just given away the universe. Well, people say, well, there's there going to be alternatives. There already are alternatives out there. People are starting to recognize this. For example, search engines. 
if any of you have used a search engine, it's got a funny name as far as I'm concerned, DuckDuckGo. <laughs> okay. It's a search engine that essentially is out there now that has a very different attitude, if I can use that phrase, about, prop, about property and how things are used. And so you're seeing this shift, and I want to underline that shift by suggesting that underlying all of this, which is a bit subtle that we're trying to bring forward here, is the actual movement from the Internet age into the information age. So in closing, we've talked about over the last couple of episodes, the movement from the industrial age to the Internet age to the information age. We've talked about the dominant technology, the icons that are being used, the science behind these various areas, the output that uh, uh, comes out of each one of these different uh, ages, the energy source, and we ended today with the basis of wealth, land, labor, and capital, talked about the distribution system, and the radical shift essentially to the information source being the key in the information age. In our next episode, uh, we will continue our discussions with just a few more items defining the work, and that will affect us if we're in the labor force, including myself. Uh, what are we doing, essentially? What, what, what value are we providing out there? Organizational form, which we see shifting, the means of logistics, and where the marketplace is. And we'll be covering those elements that are there. So in closing, thank you again for listening. Any questions or comments, you can reach me at sam at eacoe.org. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening. Tell your friends. We hope to continue to bring you value. With that, thank you for listening. We will see you next week. Thank you again. I'm Sam Holtzman, 2020's Enterprise. Have a good day. Thank you for tuning in this week to the 2020s Enterprise. Be sure to join your host, Sam Holzman, again for another edition of our program next Wednesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll have more topics of discussion then. 